Hello, everybody. Welcome to a episode of the Long Twos podcast, Long Dormant, Sleepy Like a Bear During Winter. This podcast has returned. Uh, I'm Mike Vorkanoff, a writer for The Athletic uh, with no team to cover anymore, with no place to call home, really. Uh, I used to cover the Knicks. Now I cover the business of basketball, um, a nebulous, expansive beat that I'm still not sure how I will navigate. Uh, but that's for like a more kind of, I don't know, existential conversation on different podcasts. This podcast, I, w- I want to bring on uh, someone that you guys should probably know uh, if you're a Knicks fan, someone you probably already know if you're an NBA fan. Um, Fred Katz, the new Knicks beat writer for The Athletic, is joining me on the pod this week. I figured this is the first podcast since, uh, since I left the beat. And who, who else should come on but Fred? Fred, thank you for doing this. It is an honor to be here with a uh, business vagabond, as you describe yourself. <laughs> Wonderful. The, the poorest man in business. That's what I am. <laughs> that's, you know what? That's a distinction. It's better than being the second poorest man in business because you can market the hell out of that. And all of a sudden, you're going to be like the third poorest man in business. No one it's, wants to come see the second poorest man in business. Yeah, it's like it's like in uh, in succession when Greg almost got $5 million. He's like... What are you gonna do with five million dollars? You're not rich, and you have too much money to stop working. It's a it's a bad place to be. Well, I'll tell you what. I don't watch Succession, but I'm very excited <sighs> to talk about the Knicks or business Fred, or being poor in business or whatever else you like. We could have spent this entire podcast talking about season three of Succession coming up and just talk. I just rewatched season two. Um, you know, you really have to get on this. I think I have no shows to watch. I sit around and I watch basketball. You're a loser. That's true. Okay. That's true. But who better to be a good NBA beat writer than a loser? At least I'm not the poorest man in business. <laughs> I assume when I go out on all these stories now, there's going to be a lot of people in monocles with their fancy watches hanging from their belts. And I will Top come pants. up. Yeah. And I will come up. Um, you know, in my bedraggled clothes and, white, and just white, asked to talk. White gloves. Yeah. I assume that's how this is all, yeah, all going to go. I assume that everyone you cover will look like somebody who like, like <laughs> one of those men who sank on the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> my first quote is me, Montgomery Burns said, yeah. um, we'll see how it goes. Fred, welcome to the Knicks beat. How is it? How's it been? What are you, you've been doing this for like, what, three weeks now? I've lost all track of time three weeks yeah, three weeks a little less than three weeks yeah how's the welcome three been? weeks it's been uh it's been wonderful it's great to be home it's great to be covering a new team it's it's always a little bit different you know i've switched beats before i used to cover the thunder and then i went to covering the wizards and uh you know changing beats is always a weird adjustment because you just when you're on a beat you know everybody and you get to know everybody and and it just becomes there's this familiarity you have. There's this institutional knowledge that you have of an organization, which, which you can only have by just being there every single day and every single second. And yeah, that only, there's no cheat code for that, you know? And it's, it's, it's not about like, it's not about being a fan and being able to reference who was on the 2002 Knicks. You know, that's not what I mean when I talk about institutional knowledge. It's really more about just, 
anecdotes that you've witnessed that aren't out there that you can reach back to and throw into a story. You're like, oh, I noticed this and this relates to this or, or oh, I remember in this conversation, this person told me that uh, they, they like this strategy and now they're using it against the guy that liked it. And I know why they came up with that. And now you throw in the story and that's appropriate. And it's like, you don't have those moments. So it's really about just building up uh, kind of that, that institutional knowledge so that you can apply it to the relevant moments and uh, make, make, fandom a little bit more fun for the people who like to watch the games yeah and i mean i'm having read all of your work on your previous beats i am very confident that you will get there very quickly that's very kind of you but you're so so where did you grow up in new york i grew up in the city in the city of manhattan uh-huh how yeah. how many knicks games did you go to as a kid i wasn't a knicks fan as a kid oh that's interesting i mean i went to knicks games but i wasn't a knicks fan i was a clippers fan growing up Cause I used to, I used to, when I was like eight years old, I knew old, this, I forgot. That's right. Yeah. When I was like eight years old, I used to love to play with Eric Piedkowski and Kobe Bryant, NBA courtside <laughs> 98 on N64. And I just became a Clippers fan at eight years old. And, uh, you know, that was in, I mean, I guess that, that was Kobe Bryant 98. So it was like the 98, that was the lockout. Yeah. The strike, the strike season. And, uh, <laughs> the Clippers went nine and 41 that year. And the Knicks went to the finals. And I can't remember if I thought this, but I probably thought, what the hell have I done? And then I became a Clippers fan for my whole childhood, went through terrible seasons, except for the 05-06 season when they were, they came one game away from making the Western Conference Finals. And uh, then I became a non-biased journalist just in time for them to get really good. So <laughs> none of it was worth it. <laughs> Where, weren't you part of the Clippers blog mafia? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was like my, my second... I mean, job. I mean, I started it in college and did it until a year or two after college, but wrote for clipperblog.com, which has so many great alums. Like one of the best alums of any fan specific blog. Name them. Who's ever. on there? Who's on that list? Law Murray, who now mm -hmm. covers the Clippers for The Athletic. Um, Jovan Buha, who now covers the Lakers for The and Athletic. And used to cover the Clippers for The Athletic. Uh, Kevin Arnovitz at ESPN. Uh, obviously the most well-known would be Kevin, uh, Andrew Hahn, who is a very successful NBA editor now at ESPN, uh, Seth Partnow, uh, who ran analytics for the Milwaukee Bucks and, and a very successful, you know, basketball analytics writer, uh, Charlie Widows, who is now with the Philadelphia 76ers, DJ Foster, who's written for the ringer. Um, and I apologize. Oh, Sirit Sohi. Can't believe I forgot Sirit. She'll give me crap for that one. He was with the ringer as well. A lot of great people. We had a killer team. That's an amazing, that's an amazing set of alums right there. It's a ridiculous set of alums. Yeah. I think that everyone was good. That's such a, that's it's, it's the best fan blog turned into like, it's, it's the greatest fan blog farm system I've ever heard of for, for a single team. I think the set of bloggers covering the Clippers was probably more talented than the team for the time you guys were there. <laughs> yeah, we had a hell of a group. Did you we ever really get to meet? Him. Did you ever get to meet Eric Pajkowski? I've never met Eric Pajkowski. All right, we're going to make this happen. If, uh, <laughs> if, one, if Eric Pajkowski, you're listening, can you please DM me or Fred? Two, if you know Eric Pajkowski and you're listening, can you please DM me or Fred? We need, yeah. to, we need to have this happen. I've never met him. I've never met him. I could meet him. 
but I've never yeah, met just him. casually. I mean, I just, you know, we we cover the NBA. <laughs> if you really, really want to meet a former player, all you got to do is send an email to one person who, you know, knows them. We're kind of one person degreed, for, you know, removed from everyone's PR person. Yeah. All I got to do is send a little thing, a little message to the NBA Slack on the athletic. Anybody have a number for Eric Pajkowski? <laughs> and, and certainly somebody will be like, yeah, of course. Spoke to him for a story about University of Nebraska last year. And then, then you get the number. I'm like, hey, Eric, Fred, just <laughs> wanted to introduce myself. Are you doing a story? No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I just went to his Twitter account. He's, uh, his bio says he'll always be the Polish rifle. And I guess in case there's any that was his gray Yeah. And on June 2nd, he tweeted, I am the Polish rifle. I worked my butt off my whole career to accomplish all that I have and had. I am not perfect, but I I'll hashtag stand with Kwame Brown, hashtag mama's cooking. I don't know what that's got to do with anything, but I guess he just prefaces everything by saying he's the Polish rifle. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> you know what? That makes me not regret any of my decisions. That is uh, superb. That, that's amazing. Wow. Okay, cool. I like I like where this podcast is going. Um, let's talk about the Knicks. Uh, last year they were 41 and 31. Um, this year they're kind of an interesting team. They had an interesting offseason. You're coming on for their first uh, to cover them for the first season. Um, what are your thoughts? Like, what's training camp been like? We're about what a week into no, we're we're more than that. Uh, we're two weeks into training camp now. I mean, what is uh how's it gone so far? I think they look pretty good. I think it's a little bit difficult to analyze them when they are playing this thing like it's the NBA finals. <laughs> and I got I got uh, Frank Isola quote tweeting me about being uh, the minutes police. Oh, oh, you've taken over uh, the mantle. How nice. You get the trolling from Frank. I mean, I literally about- I literally just mentioned minutes totals. Yeah. And I'm like, Frank, where? Frank hates people who uh, criticize Tom Thibodeau or count minutes. <laughs> Just mentioned minutes total. I mean, look, we're all in a race against the clock. That's right. I wonder how Frank feels if you just like mention age around him, because that's really just a greater. It's just a gr- different perspective of minutes counting. That's yeah, all it is. Yeah. Uh, but uh but yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're playing their starters. They're bringing Julius Randall back in with seven minutes left in six point games against the Pistons. So we can dive on the floor for loose balls and, and, and uh, you know, it's just different than most teams approach the preseason. So in terms of the results, it makes it a little difficult to actually try to figure out like, okay, is, is this real? But, but all that being said, um, I think they've looked pretty much what you would want them to look like. You know, we're recording this on, on Friday afternoon. And, and uh, you know, one thing that's going to be quite interesting is just like, what's Kemba going to look like in this preseason finale, assuming that he plays. He rested the other night and I thought he looked pretty good in the first game. I didn't think he looked as good in the second game. And he's a major X factor to me, how he moves and – whether he's able to create his own shots, whether he's able to run pick and roll at a high level, uh, what's his defense going to look like? Cause he got pulverized in a lot of moments there last year. Um, but otherwise, like I think RJ Barrett looks better. I think Fournier is definitely going to help their offense. 
And, uh, you know, once Robinson and Noel are back, I I actually think they're going to be pretty solid defensively. The East is a lot better, so it's going to be tougher. Yeah. The funny thing is about the minutes, just for a sec, I remember this is actually the only time David Fisdale ever got angry at me. I think maybe really anyone in a press conference was when I questioned him why he was playing RJ Barrett so many minutes in the first month of Barrett's rookie year. He played him 37 minutes a night in the preseason. And Tom Thibodeau is somehow actually more chill about minutes. And it's weird because um, I don't know. That's just, but that's just kind of the next thing. That's who they are, right? They're just, they're going to go after it every night. Like it's the playoffs until they get to the playoffs. Um, and for better or worse, I mean, they lean into what their, their team is, right? Like I, I kind of understand why they're doing it. It's not the way I would do it necessarily, but I kind of understand why, because they want to, you know, it's like an actor who goes into a film and wants to make sure that he's, you know, in his role at all times. Right. Uh, and so even when they leave the set and they're in their trailer, they're still playing, uh, you know, Lincoln or whatever. Like, I feel like that's what a Tom Thibodeau team is, is like, no matter what the scenario is, they're going to play like a Tom Thibodeau team. Right. They're a method team. Yeah. They're, they're a method team. That's right. I was looking for that. They're Daniel day Lewis. That's what Tibbs is. He's Daniel day Lewis. Um, that's what he wants his team to be. Daniel day Lewis playing Tibbs. I would watch that. (laughs) Can we make that happen? If I could make Daniel day Lewis playing anything that's relevant to me, I mean, don't you think I would have made that happen already? Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis playing Tibbs. I would, I would, that would be enjoyable. Uh, yeah. You could go to a, a few different directions on Tibbs, but I think Daniel Day-Lewis might be the one to do it. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, when I was covering the wizards, there were some similar conversations about Bradley Beal and, you know, Beal led the league in minutes a couple of years ago on a team that lost 50 games and Scott Brooks, always used to say he averaged about 37 minutes a game that year. And Scott Brooks, who was the coach of that team, always used to say, you guys on the outside focus on minutes because it's what you see. And it's a hundred percent of the information that you have, Mm -hmm. but it's not a hundred percent of the information that I have. If I played him 34 minutes a game, but destroyed him in practice every day, then that would be way more exhausting for him on the whole. But you guys would say nothing because all you'd have is that he's playing three fewer minutes a game. And that's fair. Uh, and, but I'm, I'm giving him off on practice and he's sitting drills and we don't practice that much as a team, he would say. And so you can play him the extra minutes. Uh, I always thought that was a completely, at the very least, even if you disagree, I always thought that was an extremely logical sentiment. It makes perfect sense. Um, <laughs> Nick's kill their guys in practice too. But like you said, I mean, look, would I rather have a team that, that plays a lot, that plays their best guys a lot um, and wins games because their best players are on the floor more and wins games because they've created this culture where everybody is just gritty and your best player in Julius Randle is completely down to just dive for a loose ball with three minutes left in a meaningless preseason game because, because he would take issue with me calling it meaningless. Uh, I mean, I just, I think there are worse problems to have. Yeah. I mean, really this all comes down to, it's, it's one of those situations where <clears throat> you can only second guess. And really this is a bad 
way of analysis, but the second guessing will only come if there's an injury. Right. Um, and if there isn't one, then he gets away with it and the Knicks get away with it. And, you know, there's, I think different thoughts about how much workload com- contributes to injury and, and, you know, especially, you know, there have been studies done on all these things. And it's also different compared. It's different for different individuals. Yeah. You know, it just depends on, on different individuals. There are certain players who, you know, we, I, I, I haven't seen, uh, RJ Barrett's medicals. And if I did, I wouldn't know how to evaluate them. So we tend to I know that's a knee, that's a shoulder. <laughs> right. So we tend to evaluate everybody on an even plane, right? Uh, 36 minutes is the threshold. If you play more than 36 minutes, that's a lot of minutes. And if you play 32 minutes, that's not a lot of minutes for a starter. And if you play 28 minutes, then you're really not playing a lot of minutes and that's it. But there's some guys whose bodies tell you that, it's, it's just different. Like 37 minutes might be worse for, might be better for one person's body than another guy playing 32 minutes. So, um, you know, it's all, it's tough to nitpick. It's tough to evaluate from the outside. That's why I usually just, you know, sometimes you got to ask questions about it, but that's why usually once I get the perspective on that kind of stuff, I just leave it. And I say, this is what this person says. I just, I think it's hard to evaluate from the outside. That being said, it's fine to comment on. It is a remarkable thing in the literal definition of remarkable when the top two guys in the league in total minutes come from the same team, like what happened last year with RJ Barrett and Julius Randle, which is also a reason why the Knicks were good. Listen, because, because as Jeff Van Gundy, who, <clears throat> who, who was a head coach uh, on a team that Tom Thibodeau was an assistant coach on, as Jeff Van Gundy says on I think every single broadcast is, you know, why coaches, why good coaches are good because they play their good players. <laughs> I, I think that one, one thing you'll notice, especially I think is uh, amongst people following the Knicks is there's, there will be a lot of clamoring to defund the minutes police. If you make this a thing, if you continue to harp on it, but the reason I'm actually much more interested in this um, is because the Knicks have depth this year. They, I don't think they had that much depth last year. Um, and they have depth this year. And so I'm actually interested to see what the ramifications will be of playing Julius Randle 37, 38 minutes a game, how they'll dole out minutes to Kemba Walker, because they will need to find minutes for Obi Toppin. Their own Noel, like Mitchell Robinson. They have kind of too deep at every position now. <clears throat> and I'll, I'll be curious to see what they do in terms of uh, the workload for their starters. Tibbs, as we know, historically loves to play as starters, right? Like usually I think back to his Minnesota days, it's six guys getting 30 minutes a night, right? So whoever that sixth man is always getting heavy minutes. Um, but when you have this kind of depth, how do you make sure that you placate your bench guys as well and give them enough playing time? Maybe it makes it easier when someone like Kemba is, you know, injury prone, let's say, or they'll, they'll kind of manage him a little bit. But I, I want, how do you think that they're going to do in terms of the rotation, um, guy bringing along guys like Quentin Grimes, uh, Miles McBride, like Obi Toppin to me is huge. like what they do with Obi. You know, I think that's a downside to playing Julius Randle 38 preseason minutes or 35 preseason minutes. Um, is like you got to let Obi Toppin develop too at some point. And I, I'm curious what you think and what they're going to do that, uh, this year. Yeah, I don't, as long as everyone's healthy, I don't know how much a guy like Grimes is going to play. Like right now, he's not going to be in the rotation from the start. I think part of it, and you got at it a little, is just going to be injuries. Like, yeah, they're deep, but they also have a lot of guys who you look at and you're like, are you really going to predict that guy's going to play 65-plus games? Like, 
are we really going to predict that Kemba Walker, who didn't play one back-to-back last year, is going to play 65 games? I, I, he, I don't think he's going to be on the same sitting for half of every back-to-back plan like he was last year in Boston. But I also don't think he's just going to go out there and play 82 games. Uh, are we really going to predict Derek Rose will? Uh, Mitchell Robinson has an injury history. Nerlens Noel is coming into the season with a knee injury. So, so there are, you know, Taj, Taj Gibson has uh, been around since, like Taj Gibson may have actually played against Eric Bidkowski. So, so, he's, so, so like, you know, these, there are going to be people who are out at times. And, and, you know, they, one of the things with the Knicks is one of the reasons that they were the four seed last year was they were one of the healthiest teams in the league. And I genuinely don't know how much that has to do with luck and how much that has to do with, uh, you know, them having, you know, good trainers and good medical people and all that stuff. It's, it's probably a mix of a little bit of both. Uh, but, you know, they, they got fortunate in that sense in a season where there were so many injuries around the league and so many teams had COVID breaks that were so breakouts that were so bad that they had to cancel practice and shut down their facilities and all that stuff. The Knicks really just had Derek Rose and health and safety protocols for a little bit. And that was about it. So, you know, you, you, you last year, they didn't have to account for it that much. You have to account for that though. And that's going to get some extra people, some minutes with Toppin specifically something I'm really interested to see. And I don't think Thibodeau likes it. And right now I would bet he's really not going to use it very much, but something I would love to just, like, I, I'm just curious if he'll change his mind throughout the season is, is using a Randall Toppin front court at points. He didn't last year. I know. And he doesn't like the defense on it. Yeah. He does not like the defensive look. And he's obviously always defense first. Um, and there's not rim protection there, but that being said, I'm not arguing start the top in Randall front court. No way. They've got two centers who are there to protect the rim and who are extremely important to their defense. But I think there are moments where you can go to it and the offense might be able to outweigh the defense. Randall with a five having to guard him, although maybe they wouldn't have fives guard him in that scenario. Maybe you put the five on Toppin because Toppin's more likely in the corner uh, and you have a four, you know, you still have your primary guy guard Randall. But, but either way, then Randall guarding just operating at the top of the key or from the high post with an open floor, four guys spreading around him. Huge difference. So much more room for attack. He's going to get more free throws. You know, one thing that I really like that I'm going to write about, I think for a story on Monday, which is just going to be like storylines I'm excited for about the Knicks. Like I, I love it when they run an inverted Randall RJ Barrett pick and roll, which they do pretty rarely because it's hard to do that when you have Robinson or Noel right there in the middle, because it mm-hmm. telegraphs where RJ is going to go. He's just going to pop. Uh, but, but RJ Barrett's actually really good passing out of the short roll. So if you can put those guys in situations where you don't know where RJ is going to go and you've got a guard or whoever is defending Barrett guarding the back end of a pick and roll, and you've got, uh, you know, a big guard in the front end, and everyone's confused and convoluted and the floor is spread. It just allows, it just causes so much more chaos and you could run more actions like that offensively um, when the floor is spread, when you've got topping out there. Um, 
and it gives him more room to operate and it gets him more minutes. And, and he looked like he could be a contributor in the second half of last year. I, I don't think they're really <laughs> going to do it very often at all. Tib says he's not really going to do it very often. So I'm just spitballing my own ideas. Uh, I thought, I thought Obi Toppin's progress through the course of last year was actually one of the more interesting things about the Knicks um, because he was pretty not good up through like February. Um, and then by the time the playoffs came, he was one of their steadier, more productive guys on a minutes basis, you know, per minutes basis, uh, not just by the numbers, but just watching him play. And he really gave them great minutes in the playoffs, I thought, against the Hawks. And so what they did with him in, you know, in the few minutes that they gave him, it was actually a really interesting look into the whole do you need minutes to develop conversation, right? Because he didn't get the minutes on the court to develop, but the development was very clear. Uh, and, and so I'm curious what they do with him, with Grimes, with McBride this year uh, to continue that, because it's, it's clear that unlike Fisdale and Hornacek and all that, the off-court work that they were doing on the previous regimes wasn't doing much. But it seems like what Tibbs and the Knicks are doing now is pretty useful. Um, so they almost have the leeway to, to not have to force feed minutes to develop players. Well, I'll tell you what, that's, that's one point for practicing really hard and not resting your guys because if yeah. you don't have a guy who's playing and you're with a team say uh doc rivers famously rarely ever practices right also famously coaches veteran teams and has for like literally a decade and a half in boston right. in la and philly so there's reason for him not to practice but they rarely practice doc rivers young guys also don't really get playing time because he's on veteran win now teams and they don't really practice and they often don't really develop Doc mm-hmm. Rivers young guys. Like when was the yeah. last time that a young guy on a doc rivers team, like really truly developed and like did something that we didn't quite expect reached the ceiling that we didn't expect. And we thought, man, that organization did a great job with him. Rajon Rondo, maybe. Okay. Sure. Many years ago. Right, right. No, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with yeah. you. Yeah, I mean, it didn't happen with the Clippers, and and it and it didn't. Uh, I mean, maybe it'll happen with Tyrese Maxey or something, but you know, maybe it'll happen with Matisse Thybul. But Ben Simmons. But, but he didn't develop Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons <laughs> is the same. Um, maybe Doc will be the guy to give him a jump shot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but my my point is that it's it's hard for a young guy to develop when he's both not playing and not practicing. Yeah. So, so that's one of the benefits of like the Knicks practicing really hard and practicing really often where like, yeah, Obi Toppin's not getting minutes, but you can bet your ass. He was getting minutes on the practice court and in highly competitive situations. Cause they had highly competitive practices. Um, I agree with you. He looked a lot better. That's why I went on my, my, I don't know what it was. My tangent about trying to find ways to get him on the floor. Cause like he was a lottery pick. You, yeah. It, it, what what you don't want is to use a lottery pick on a guy, him to actually turn into a pretty good player, and then you just still like it's one thing if you use a lottery pick on a guy and he just disappoints and you don't play him, you know Kevin Knox, but it just you don't want to have a situation where you draft a guy number eight, and then he's actually pretty good, and you still can't find minutes for him. Right. Uh, so, so there's got to be some way. I don't think you can play him and Randall at the three and the four. No. And and even if you play, okay, like Randall, let's say you don't play him 37 minutes. Like even if you play Randall 
35 minutes. Like, okay, that's, that's two more minutes for me. That's 13 minutes at the four for topping. Like that's, that's not a consequential amount of rotation minutes. I mean, you, ideally you want to have a guy like that at 18 to 20 or something, you know, so he can, he can really make an impact on the game's outcome. I don't know how else you do it other than playing him and Randall together. Like, I don't know. Do you? Yeah. I, I, I mean, no, uh, you, you're almost, I mean, you're, you're kind of limited in that way, right? <clears throat> Toppin is uh He's he's a he's not big enough to play the five, so you can't even play him at the five if you want to give him back up five minutes. I think um, I don't know if he's kind of good. He's definitely not a rim protector, and we'll see what the rebounding is. And so, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's going to be the thing. About, you know, I think that gets back to what Tom Thibodeau is, right? For better and for worse, um, Tom Thibodeau has principles that he believes in, and there's a lot of good things about that. And you have to live with the downsides, right? Um, sometimes they're small, depending on the team that they're on. And sometimes they're a little bit bigger. And so developing young players and making sure that there's time for them um, is sometimes, you know, a downside for Tom. Although, you know, last year, the way that they used quickly and they brought him along, I, I thought that they were pretty creative about it. And you saw how he played as a rookie and continued to develop through summer league. And, you know, this was a guy that they thought everyone thought coming into the draft was just an off ball guard. And we saw him play a lot on the ball and they found him 20 minutes a night and were able to, um, you know, <clears throat> increase and uh, decrease his minutes appropriately based on to how he was playing it and really just kind of uh, made the most out of his rookie year. I thought. Yeah. You know, I was talking to Taj Gibson because he, Taj has just been attacked. Can you find out what his bodega is? The bodega that he goes to? He keeps talking about bodegas for the last, you know, in the playoffs, he was talking about the bodegas. Now he's talking about bodegas. That actually what, sounds what's his like. What's go-to bodega? This sounds like a fun story idea. I think you should do it. Talking about New York bodegas with Taj Gibson. What's his, what's his order? What's yeah. his bodega? What's his spot? Well, it sounds like it's a bacon, hanging? egg, and cheese. Sounds yeah. like it's a bacon, egg, and cheese. Do you think, think there's a spot a in Brooklyn with this picture hanging up over the, you know, over like the wall behind the guy working the counter? No, in, in, in my mind, the Taj Gibson bodega experience is like the guy, the guy who works there knows him as a regular, but has no idea he plays for the Knicks. <laughs> you know, like he, he comes he in, he's like, hey, Taj. It, doesn't put it together. Yeah, he's just Taj from around the corner. He's a nice guy. I forget what he does. I don't know. Must be a fine yeah. nice guy. Yeah, I believe that. I would, Taj seems like a low-key guy where he wouldn't like I don't think he's the type of guy who walks into the bodega wearing like a Knicks hoodie. No, 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 no. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. I think he's just like I think he's like in sweats. It's the morning. He's going for his morning walk, experiencing the the crisp breeze in Fort yeah. Wayne or wherever he is. Like it's uh I think uh I think the guy's just like that's Taj from around the corner. Of course, he always I know his order. He walks in. He's the guy who walks in. He's like, you know, all the regular. You, you might know, even have course. a sandwich named after him, for all we know. No, nah, because that would mean they know who he is. <laughs> no, he's just Taj. The they just call it the Taj. Yeah. It's just a guy. Uh, but anyway, I was talking to him about yeah. Tibbs and because he's been attached at the hip to Tibbs for basically both of their entire careers uh, and or Tibbs had coaching career. In, in, in Chicago and in Minnesota and here. And I was talking to him about the biggest thing that's changed with Tibbs as a coach since the beginning. And he was saying to me the way he works with young guys. Mm. He spends more time working with young guys now 
and he brought up Emmanuel quickly, specifically talked about, seems like quickly and Tibbs have a really good relationship. And, uh, I wrote about that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and, uh, seems like they have a really good relationship. I'm, I'm sure you know more about it than me, but, uh, Tibbs spends a lot of time on quickly. And, uh, Taj was talking about how like 2010 Tibbs wasn't as focused on that kind of stuff. So I, I think, I think one of the interesting things with coaches is like, you kind of are who you are personality wise. You often are who you are by the time you're an NBA head coach or a grown adult. But we talk about with players when an NBA player first comes into the league and they're 19 or 20 or 21 or 22, and they're a rookie. And we say, wow, that guy's good. Imagine how good it'll be when he hits his prime. And we have no problem comprehending that as people who watch the sport. Uh, that guy's good now, and it's his first year doing it. So yeah. it's going to be better. And we do that with so many. We do that with journalists. We're like, James Edwards is so good on the Pistons, and he's only like 29. He's going to be awesome, you know? Uh, and, and yet with NBA head coaches, we don't do that for some reason. We're always like, oh, this guy doesn't pay attention to rookies. I guess he's literally never going to pay attention to rookies. It's always over. Um, sometimes coaches change. They change at different spots. They change when they coach different players. Uh, they change depending on the different personalities they you they're they're with. So, uh, you know, I think that's something that while the core of who Tibbs is as a coach is undoubtedly the same, I think his um his affection not the affection his attention towards young guys it sounds like has changed in the last ten years. Yeah, I find it interesting. Um, in Chicago, I think he was notoriously uh, kind of an absent coach when it came to the rookies, you know. <clears throat> and I found it interesting, like the, the picks that the Knicks made this year were two Tibbsy guys, right? Like I, I was, I remember watching Miles McBride play ahead of the draft, not knowing obviously the Knicks were going to take him. I was like, this, this seems like a Tibbs kind of guy. Um, and then the talk coming out of after when Quentin Grimes got drafted was like, this is a Tibbs guy. Tibbs liked him in their workout in his workout for the Knicks. And I think it says two things. One, it seems like the Knicks gave Tom Thibodeau input into their, who, who their draft picks are. Right. Um, which isn't rare. You know, coaches have input in who the picks are. Like it, the word was that those were two guys who really impressed in the Chicago combine. And Tom was there watching the most, like he was the guy most locked into what was going on on the court during the combine. But to your point, I think it also shows that he cares who the Knicks bring in, which young players the Knicks bring in. Right. And I don't know if that was the case in Chicago or maybe even in Minnesota. Right. Like it's not just investing in them when they're on the team, he's invested in who they bring in because he wants the right guys that he can then spend time with. Uh, and I think that's been an, I didn't even think about it until you mentioned, but just an interesting evolution into, into Tibbs, the coach is just his willingness to invest into the rookies, into the young guys on the team from the very point of even caring which rookies they draft, not just being like, ah, eh, you know, I'm sure in Chicago is like, Give me whatever. I'm not going to play him anyway. Uh, now he seems to care and doles out minutes when warranted. Yes. Yes. When warranted. He's not going to, I don't know if he'll ever be the guy who just. I don't see young, that happening. Got to develop you, give him out. But you know what? Most coaches aren't like that. Unless you're just coaching a real crap team. Yeah. Like most coaches aren't like that. Not very few of the coaches who I, have spoken to in my time covering the NBA really genuinely believe like the line that coaches will use is you gotta earn it. 
can't just come in here thinking you're going to be given minutes. You have to earn minutes. It's the line that coaches use all the time. Does the Nerlens Noel re-signing make more sense uh, now that we know Mitchell Robinson still is not healthy enough to play or is still not there and the, that he can play in the game? I guess. I think it makes more sense knowing there's a team option on the last year. Uh, I mean, two years at $11 million or just about is still a lot for a starting center. Yes. W- one of Noel's caliber. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I mean, look, I'm, I'm a big proponent – of non-elite centers are the running backs of the NBA. Not because they're not valuable to a team. They can be very valuable to a team. I think it's very clear how valuable Nerlens Noel and Mitchell Robinson were last year to the Knicks. And I actually think they're going to be more valuable this year because you got Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier at the top of your defense, which is not as good as defensively. Is not mm-hmm. the same level as Alfred Payton and um, Reggie Bullock. And Payton wasn't some kind of all-world defender. Bullock was good, but Payton isn't some sort of all-world defender. He's just no. There are a lot of breakdowns with Alfred Payton. Totally, he's just better than Kemba was last year. Yeah. Um. So you're just you're just downgrading at those two positions, which means there are going to be more guys in the middle. There are going to be more guys in the lane. And who is your last line defense? Noel and Robinson. And and last year the Knicks had the best field goal percentage allowed in the NBA in the restricted area. And those guys were obviously a big part of that, even though Robinson only played 31 games. Um, So those guys are really important. The reason I say that they're the running backs of the NBA is because I just think they're pretty easily, they're just more replaceable. Uh, well, look at where they found Noel and Robinson, right? They signed exactly. one year, five million dollar for Noel, uh, Noel last year, and then Robinson. They got in the second round, right? You can you can scoop. You can always go scoop up Javale McGee, you know that kind of guy, the bouncy, uh, you know, lob finishing, screen setting, rim diving, gonna chase some blocks sometimes gonna be out of place sometimes but gonna play energetic defense and overall gonna be a positive impact defensively for you around the rim kind of guy hyper athletic there's so many of those guys around the league now uh who are just good players you can always go out and and try to find that guy and he's often not crazy expensive that being said it's not like no i don't think the noel contract was like it certainly isn't some sort of disastrous thing. It's not going to, it's not going to kill you. It's not expensive enough to kill you. And he's a good player. Uh, You know, there, there are, there were worse errors regarding signing centers over the last couple of years. Like, like I worry about name them. I worry about that Rashawn Holmes contract. What was it? Four for 50. Is that right? About. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the, the interesting thing is, I, so I, I was looking yeah, into Mason, it. Mason Plumley with Detroit. You sign him for three years, 25-ish. And one year in, you are having to use a draft pick to dump him to the Hornets so that you can sign Kelly Olynyk for a little bit more. <laughs> uh, and Mason Plumley, don't, don't get me wrong. Mason Plumley is a good player. He's a great passer. He is such an underrated passer. He's an excellent passing center. And he sets screens and he moves well within an offense. And he's not a horrible defender. Uh, he's he's going to start 
for the Hornets and he's going to help their offense. I think he, Mason Plumlee's a a nice player. It's just that extra four or 5 million bucks can go to something else. Um, And that's all, that's all. It's just, you know, I I don't know if those four or 5 million bucks would have gone to something else in the case that the Knicks were in, they were an operating under the cap team. It's not like, um, and, and it's not like an extra $4 million might've brought in another free agent or something like that. Um, but in terms of just the value that you're going to get, you're paying a guy off of his best year and it's, it's suboptimal, but Hey, they can play 48 minutes now when both those guys are healthy with legitimately very good rim protection. Yeah. And I mean, I will. That's yeah, important. I agree. I mean, I, I looked, I remember looking into it. Um, after the, they, they resigned Noel, if you have a top 10 defense and rim, rim field goal percentage, which the Knicks led the league in last year, like you said, like you're pretty much guaranteed a top 14 of effective field goal percentage in the league overall, right? Like that kind of backline protection is, you know, is what allows you to become a top half of the league defense and then you improve on it from there. Um, it, I, I thought it was interesting because they've been so smart and so uh, creative about kind of all these marginal moves since Leon Rose took over that this one was the first one spending 11 mil a year on Nerlens Noel was the first one that seemed like they were just willing to play, pay market price on a non premium player. Um, and it didn't, it didn't seem like a, a like a really smart uh, creative signing. And, and that's why I think this one stands out above all others to me from yeah. their free agency. I mean, I'll be fair to them it's not like everybody in the league was like, what the hell is that contract? I, there, there are people I talk to in the league who are totally smart and I respect the hell out of their opinion, who actively liked that contract for them. Uh, this is just, you know, we, we have a bias against non-elite centers. You want to extend Bam out of bio on the max. Great. Go yeah. crazy. Go for it. Nikola Jokic on a max. Great. Go for it. Uh, you know, non, even, even Clint Capella, 18 a year. Cool. Nice. He's, I, I put him second team all defense last year. He's a great defensive player. He, he's, he's a great screen setter. He, he works awesomely with Trey Young. And you want to do that? Great rebounder. Go, go for it. That's fine. He does it at such a high level that that's fine. But when we're talking about guys who, you know, it's not like Nerlens Noel is the best rim protector in the league. Uh, you know, when we talk about guys who are kind of outside the, is that even a lot threat the way that Mitchell Robinson is? I think is right because that... he 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 doesn't have the hands that Mitchell Robinson has. Yeah, Mitchell Robinson has soft hands. Mitchell Robinson will, will make some great catches on those. Mm-hmm. Listen, he erased so many turnovers his first two years in New York uh, that he was just able to use his Gumby like arms to cat go up there and get those passes. It's it's a shame that he's younger than Ray Felton because Ray. <laughs> Ray Felton would have been so great playing with Mitchell Robinson because Ray, Ray Felton was the greatest highlight producing lob thrower the NBA has ever seen. Now he was not the best lob thrower. Like people always say Andre Miller was the best lob thrower. Chris Paul was a great lob thrower. He was not the best lob thrower. Ray Felton was an actively bad lob thrower, right? But he was just good enough that he'd, he'd never throw the lob right on target, but he yeah. would never wildly throw it away. He was always like six to 10 inches too high or right. two to the right or to the left on the lob. So 
it was to the point where like the guy, if he was good, would make the catch and throw it down, but it would be, it would take a really nice recovery in the air and it would turn what would be if like Chris Paul was throwing it kind of a normal lob, which is still an exciting play into, Oh my God, how'd he catch that and finish it every time Ray Felton threw a lob. So it's really a shame that, that we never got Ray Felton with, with Mitchell Robinson. But in a way, it's kind of ingenious because how do you defend crappy lob throws, right? Because you're always, you're, you're always expecting a good, good one because you're thinking, okay, he's going to throw the lob. I know where to go to get it. Ray Felton's like, no, I'm just going to throw it anywhere. Ray Felton was a good I, player. Ray Felton was. was a good player. I'm, I'm saying that in advance now. Ray Felton was a good player. He just was not a great, not, not a perfectly accurate lob thrower. Where do you have the mix? for fun basketball. Where do you have the Knicks this season? What's your what's your analysis of the East and where the Knicks stand? I've been saying seventh. Okay. So I'll say seventh again. Playing. Yeah, yeah. That's a new I, demarcation for me. Is like, are they a top six team or are they not? Because yeah, that's what matters. Yeah, yeah. I've been saying seventh. Um, could be eighth, but I've been saying seventh, and I will say seventh again. I think the East is really good. I think the East is, is really good. I mean, Milwaukee and Brooklyn are right there at the top. Even if right. Kyrie never sees the floor all year, I, I, I still kind of, I still might, I kind of think Brooklyn's still the favorite. Even if I Kyrie think they're still the favorite. The yeah. yeah. I, I kind of think they're still the favorite. And, and if they're not, then Milwaukee's the favorite to come out of the East. And then you got, who the hell knows what's going to happen with Philly. It's totally plausible. Philly just completely implodes. Like I'm like completely implodes. Sure. I mean, even with Joel Embiid there, Joel Embiid's not guaranteed to play 82 games. That's true. That's true. You know, Joel Embiid could miss Joel Embiid's going to miss 20 games of every season already. Like right, right off the top, Joel Embiid has a healthy, basically full season. You know, he's missing like 18 games. You just got to shave that off the top of his season. Right. Mm -hmm. He's not going to, He's not going to play 74 games. They won't even let him play 74 games. They're going to healthy rest him to make sure he doesn't play that many, you know? So, so yeah, yeah, it's, they could implode. Uh, but, but until we actually see them imploding, I'm going to assume they'll be good. Top six. Good. So that's three. Uh, Miami is, I think too talented at the top of their roster. Uh, and Atlanta, I think Atlanta is third in, in the conference right now at least. And, and I kind of think Boston's going to have a turnaround season. So do I. I, I really do. I think, I think they're kind of built for the regular season. They can go really deep. They have a lot of quality NBA players. They, I think they have a chance to be one of the best defensive teams in the league. They have so many good defensive guards. Al Horford is still a, like a, a wonderful positional defender, even if he's not quite as quick as he used to be. And he's still a great positional defender if if Robert Williams can stay healthy he's obviously got loads of defensive potential uh, there's just there's a lot to like there they have so many feisty guards obviously Marcus Smart is excellent but but Schroeder can get into you and Josh Richardson can get into you um, like Tatum and and Jalen Brown are both good on the perimeter and have size so I I think Boston suffered from a series of very team unfriendly events last year, including the fact that Jason Tatum got long COVID and was on yeah. an inhaler for half the season 
and didn't play well when he was on an inhaler. And then once he started to feel better, all of a sudden he started dropping 50 every night. It was great in the playoffs. So, so I assume Jason Tatum is going to have an awesome year. And uh, Jalen Brown's gotten better every single year. So I assume he will continue to do that. And I, I think that team could be top six good. And, uh, and then I got the Knicks, who, who I think will be about middle of the pack to a little below middle of the pack offensively. And, and I just kind of have faith that they're going to find a way to sneak into the top 10 on defense again, because that's just kind of what they yeah. do. So much I, of being good at defense in the regular season is just the desire to be really good at defense. <laughs> they care so much about being really right. good at defense. And, and like we discussed, they have the rim protection. It's not like that's their only, those are their only defenders. Like Julius Randall had a good defensive season last year. He got better. And he did. RJ Barrett got better defensively. Yeah. Um, and, and so they've, it's not like they've just got the rim protection. They've got some other guys who can do it and, and guys planned or, I just, I just kind of feel like a Tom Thibodeau team is going to be top 10 defensively. So. I, I think I'm really interested to see what they do uh, from three this year. I think that's going to be the defining arc of how their season goes. Um, nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Defining arc. Um, I think last year they were tied for second or third in three-point shooting percentage. Obviously, they were, I think, last or second to last in threes per game. It seems like. They're taking a hell of a lot of threes in preseason. We'll see if they keep it up, but like, you know, what the regression looks like from three shooting wise and how they try to make up for it uh, in volume is going to be really interesting to me. And, and because I think after Derek Rose came aboard, they were a top 14 offense, something like that. Um, and if they can be a top, you know, if they can be like a 12th best offense in the league com combined with their top 10 defense, then they'll be top 16. If their so, three point shooting falls off. Yeah. I mean, you, you're, they were much better after they got Rose last year. He just changed the dynamic of the bench. I mean, when Rose and Quickly and Burks were together, they were plus 12 for 100 possessions. Mm -hmm. That bench unit was running, running the opponent's side of the gym. It's going to be really interesting to see if they keep that up this year because if the five-man bench unit dominates again like that this year, it's kind of possible they do. I mean, Rose was really good for them. We'll see if Burks is able to carry over that production. But it's also possible that, like, Quickly was a rookie. He could just get better. Toppin was a rookie. He could just get better. Like, yeah. see, like, progression is not linear for players. That's the thing everyone has to remember, right? That's true. That's true. I'm not saying that they won't get better, but I'm saying that I, I think it's it, foolhardy to assume that uh, progression and getting better is linear for professional athletes. I think we have fair. too much evidence to state otherwise. That's fair. That's totally fair. But I think there's a world in which that that bench unit is able to carry over being, being really good. Maybe not maybe not plus twelve per hundred because that's that's ridiculous. I mean that's like if if a team were plus twelve per hundred for the regular season, they'd be by far the best team in the NBA. Right. Uh, but I think there's I I think it's realistic to expect that bench unit to to still be good and and win its minutes when those three are playing against second unit guys again. And I think the Knicks are certainly operating that way. Um, by the way, the three point thing, another Tom, another Tibbs evolution thing where like, that's a story that I want to write if, but only if it actually happens in the regular season, I'm not going to write it anticipatorily about <laughs> Tom Thibodeau is, has changed. He loves threes now, but 
he's never, this is his 10th year as an NBA head coach and never has one of his teams finished in the top half of the league in three point uh, rate, which is just the percentage of your shots that are coming from deep. And now he seems to be pushing threes like this initiative to shoot more threes started with him. Uh, They're sixth in the league in attempts per game at the, at the time of this recording. And if they finish in the top 10 in attempts, that would be a really big jump last year, last year, only one team in the NBA jumped from bottom 10 in the league in three point attempts to top 10 in the league in three point attempts. And that team was the warriors who didn't have Steph Curry two years ago and did have Steph Curry last year and having Stephen Curry, I don't feel like probably has something to do with that. Uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty unprecedented for a team to jump from bottom 10 to top 10 in attempts. And it would be completely unprecedented for a, for a Tibbs team to finish in the top half of the league in three point rate. So I, I, I just am curious if it changed, it seems like his message has changed. If it changed, I'm, I'm curious why I'm curious how much that has to do with personnel. I'm curious how much that has to do with the way he views the game. I I don't know the answers, but I, I would love to know. I would, I can't wait to read the story when you write it. The thing that's always interesting. If I write it, they might also just come out there and take the 23rd most threes in the league again. Then it's never seen the light of day because it's not true. (laughs) You you know, like it's interesting tips to me, like when he got hired, I remember looking at his history and like what he's done. And I talked to Jeff Van Gundy about it and I was uh, I was like, you know, Tibbs strikes me is instead of having a certain way that he likes to play offensively, defensively, I think he has his very key principles and he sticks to them no matter where he goes. Offensively, I told him, I was like, he strikes me as a utilitarian type of coach. Like he'll do what he needs to do. And then Jeff Van Gundy, uh, Riley uh, said that, oh, well, Tibbs doesn't run the, you know, hog and clog offense. That's not his thing. He just doesn't run a space and pace type of offense. But to me, Tibbs like seems to adjust to the personnel that he has, you know, when he had Carl Anthony towns in Minnesota, they ran a lot through the post, but that's not what they did in Chicago. That's obviously not what they did in New York. Um, They're the nature of their offense changes. So it it kind of doesn't surprise me that they're shooting a lot more threes in New York, because that's where the strength of the team is, especially now that Julius Randall, if he maintains what he did last year is able to just pull up from three and create his own shot from the perimeter like that. You have Kemba, who's a pull-up three guy, and you have Derrick Rose, who's taking more threes. And obviously, they had Bullock last year, and they have Burks now, and Fournier, and all these things. Um, and they made their investments in pull-up shooting. So it, it, you know, Tibbs being a rational actor offensively as a coach makes sense that they would become a little more three-heavy. So I think that is all great analysis. That being said, they're going to shoot twenty threes game. <laughs> no, I'm just going to read off something really quick. In in Chicago, they didn't take a lot of threes, but but it wasn't like it was in Minnesota. Minnesota, Tibbs' first year in Minnesota, they were dead last in the NBA in three-point rate. Yeah. His second year in Minnesota, they were dead last in the NBA in three-point rate. His third year, which is when he was done in the middle of the year and Ryan Saunders took over, I don't know what they were when when he finished. Uh, in in Minnesota, but they were uh, at the end of that year, they were 26th in three point rate. And the difference between Minnesota, that the difference between what happened in Minnesota and what happened in Chicago and what's happening in New York is you can say he plays to the personnel, which I think is is true. I agree with you, 
but he was responsible for the personnel in Minnesota. So well, I think he has a preference maybe. Right. So, so what I'm saying is like, if he's responsible for the personnel and the personnel that, that he's, he's going out and getting is not the personnel where you, um, it's not the personnel where you're able to put shooters around guys. And look, Carl Anthony Towns is also, he's a three point shooter. You want to run stuff out of the post. Great. Carl Anthony Towns can create a ton of threes for you. If you're surrounded by shooters, like there are, there are, I think it's clear that there was a preference of not shooting as much threes as the rest of the league. I just don't know. I don't know yet. Cause I haven't asked what the motivation was for that preference. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how specific that preference was to the his circumstances. And I don't know if his philosophy towards that has changed or adjusted or anything like that. And if so, I don't know how or why. Uh, and I, I'd love to learn the answers to those questions. And the beauty of my job is I get to ask them, which is the most fun part of my job that I get to sit here and have this conversation with you and be like, why did this change? And then I can ask them in a press conference, why did this change? And then they'll tell me why it changed. And then I get to write a whole story analyzing it. So we'll see if it actually did change first. How has covering the NBA been this year? How's the access been better? Do you get to talk to players now? Do you get to see practice? I'm in person. Yeah, in person with your own eyes. Communicating with human beings, not over Zoom. Wow. It's, uh, you know, for the listeners who don't know, we were, everything was over Zoom last year because of the pandemic. I didn't see an NBA player or NBA personnel like in person, you know, for an interview or for anything all season. And now like, yeah, it's in person. We're sitting in the same room as, as Tibbs when he does his post-practice and post-game and pre-game press conferences and all that. And it's uh, and same thing with the players. And, you know, we're, we're on the practice court for the last 10 minutes of practice and all that. And it's, uh, it's quite nice to be in person, which I feel like is an emotion a lot of people feel in their jobs right now when they go back to the office. Yeah, uh, that's really exciting. You know, obviously I haven't covered a game or practice yet. Uh, this season, but that's something I'm really looking forward to is doing this whole thing in person again. It's gonna be oh, nice. Yeah. I, I I will admit when I covered Game One at the Garden of the playoffs last year with 15,000 people, uh, which was a super spreader event up until like four months before that, uh, there was an emotional aspect to it. It was nice. It was heartwarming to have that many people in one place. It's great. It's so much fun hearing a crowd roar. You know, mm-hmm. like. I think opening night is probably going to be wild yeah. because, because this is the most positive Knicks fans have been about this team in years, you know, like on, on opening night, like this is, this is the most, they are probably better. When was the last time there were vibes this positive about the Knicks on opening night, like 2014. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's 2013 was well. coming off. Yeah, probably. But, like, yeah, probably 2013. Right, 20, yeah, coming off that 54 yeah. one team. Yeah, right, right. 20, 20, 13, 14. They won what? 30, 37, 37. Yeah. Uh, you know, it didn't go well, but they were coming off a playoff series win and, and the 54 win season like vibes going into that other than all the Knicks fans freaking out because uh, Shaney, the Shaney model picked that picked them to win 37 games. And then they actually did win 37 games. The vibes were uh, very good 
with that team and the vibes were very good with the fan base then i, I feel like this is the highest it's been since then yeah so it's gonna be very interesting yeah, it's very so weird to have so many happy next yeah opening night against the celtics if they if they play well they have a big moment you know randall hits a big three Toppin has a big dunk i feel like that crowd's gonna go absolutely berserk yeah i i totally be a agree cool moment that'll be a cool moment when it happens yeah um so this is the long twos podcast so i like to do something called the short twos uh with people on the podcast where i just ask you two quick questions great so i'm gonna do that now uh fred what's your favorite place to eat in new york city mm. are we saying like independent to price like am i picking like a really expensive restaurant and being a snob or or am I, I asked saying, you like, what your favorite place, place to eat. No, your favorite place to eat. You answer that how you want. If you're out there like Scrooge McDuck at Le Bernardine every night, you know, you can tell us. We won't rich shame you. All right. The I will say my my favorite restaurant in New York City is Four Charles Prime Rib. For Charles, I've never even heard of that. And that is some special rich people island that Jack Donaghy goes to type of restaurant. Oh, it's, it, it is a Jack Donaghy restaurant. It's 100%. It's one of those places you have to. $3 signs on Resi. Oh, yeah. It's ridiculous. And it's insanity. Uh, yeah. And I will say the food establishment. That- Four and a half stars on Yelp. $4 signs on the infatuation. You're li- oh, 9.1. You're living well. Oh, well, I'm not exactly going there every Tuesday. And I will say every other Tuesday, the food establishment that I have been to the most in New York is Papaya King. Papaya King solid. Papaya King is great. I, you know, what? and, and Papaya King and P.O. P.O. are probably the two food establishments in New York that I've been to the most. P.O. P.O. I'm a big fan of. P.O. P.O. is great. Yeah. It's so good. The green sauce is amazing. I was I used to go to school in uh, the lower the east side, and uh, Mamoons was a big spot. Mamoons is awesome. Same vein. I think this is great. The thing I don't like is when those types of places expand and franchise. I lived in Hoboken for a while, and uh, Artichoke came to Hoboken. Mm. Artichoke's overrated. Not the same. Artichoke's overrated. The go-to order at Artichoke is actually the margarita slice. Art Artichoke is not a top five slice place in the city. I agree. I agree. It's overrated. What's your top slice place? Where are you going for pizza if you need a slice? The the best slice place? Yeah. The There's only slice, one answer, by the way. Ma- Mama's two is the best slice place on 105th and Broadway. Wow. The, the upper west side. I didn't expect Joe's that. Joe's is excellent. Eh. Eh. Joe's, Joe's is, is good. It's better than Bleaker Street Pizza. Joe's is better than Bleecker Street. I think Prince Street is overrated. Wow. The, pre- the pepperoni. <laughs> yeah. The pepperoni Over- square slice at Prince Street. How are you I don't want that? a square. A squ- I refuse to admit that a square slice of pizza is the best slice of pizza in New York. That's ridiculous. In order to qualify as the best slice of pizza in New York, you know what you have to be? You have to look like a New York slice of pizza. You can't be this square crap. No way can that be. It doesn't even qualify. It's like if I asked you who's the best point guard in the NBA and you said Nikola Jokic. And I was like, 
fuck you. You're not going to say that just because he passes the ball and gets a lot of assists. He's a center. That's what you're saying with the square slice. I'm sorry. I'll I don't take know it. if I can curse on here. Yeah, you can curse on here. When and it's I'm about very pizza, passionate you can curse. about pizza. I will say New York Pizza Suprema. Very good. I think underrated for how good it is. What's what's the best pizza in New York, though? Non-slice place. The Any best pizza. pizza in New York. Non-slice I, place. I think it's Lucali. Well, I think, first of all, we have to admit that the best pizza in the area is New Jersey. I think that's uh, the first place we have to think. We have to say. And so my favorite place, I mean, 10th Street Pizza in Hoboken is amazing. Uh, Raza in Jersey City gets a lot of love, though I think it's actually a little bit overrated. I think it's overrated. Talking about Jersey right now? Jersey pizza? You know what? I actually, I don't enjoy sitting down for these uh, wood fire oven, a coal fire pizza. Like that's, I just, I just don't enjoy it as much. It's just a nice New York slice. Mm, Lucali's in Brooklyn and it's unbelievable. Okay. I mean, we can, we can agree to disagree. Defara is up there too. Yeah. We're talking slice places. Defara is amazing. Yeah. Uh, and second question, Fred, what are you streaming right now? What are you binging? Mm, I just What's finished, your HBO Max and chill. Just finished season two of Ted Lasso. That is the most recent show that I watched. Would you have fired Trent Krim? Of course. Were you just as shocked? Is that a thing that only like the five reporters watching the show were aghast okay. at? You know what's so funny? I was talking about this with Peter Body at the Knicks in the... Uh, Media room yesterday. Okay. Every reporter, spoiler alert. Yeah. Okay. So, spoiler alert. Um, we're talking about season two of Ted Lasso, about the last, second to last episode. Um, if you haven't gotten to that point yet in Ted Lasso, just turn off the podcast now. Great. All right. We gave you the time. We gave him the time. All right. You've turned it off. The podcast is off. I can talk about this. Uh, every journalist had such a problem with what. Trent Krim did. Yeah. By, by, to be clear, just outing his source when nobody even asked who his source was and his source being Nate. Um, massive journalism no-no. The biggest one, really. The second biggest one, other than lying. Yeah. Yeah. Just creating things. Yeah. yeah. One and one A. Yeah. Yeah. Massive, massive journalism no-no. And, and the reason why I find it a, a little bit not as believable is because not ousting outing sources is not like a thing that we pledge to do. It's, it's like an ethical code that we like live by, you know? People have literally and, gone to jail to protect their sources. Right. And, and Trent Krim is such a capital, Trent Krim, the independent, is such a capital J journalist. You yeah. know, pros pro Trent Krim. He's a, he's, he's, he's what we aspire to. So he even said he wrote that story despite liking Ted. He felt he had to get the news out there. Exactly. And so, you know, it was interesting. Somebody screenshot it and put it on, put it on Twitter and it, like his story. And you could read the story in the paper. Oh, really? This Trent Krim's story was actually just a call for there to be more attention towards uh, mental health in athletics. Interesting. And uh, which I thought was a, a nice detail by the show. And so every journalist was so angry. Oh my God, I can't believe Trent Krim did that. That's, that's terrible. That's so unrealistic. The reaction from journalists is 
ridiculous. We're watching a show about a college football coach who becomes a head soccer coach in the Premier League, even though they don't know the rules to soccer. Come on. It's a good storyline. This is ridiculous. All journalists getting all high and mighty with this. It's absurd. Just enjoy the plot line. And guess what? They made it realistic. He got fired immediately for doing it. He told on himself and he got fired immediately for doing it. So they made it realistic. Am I supposed to sit here and think that no journalist has ever done anything that violates our ethics? Of course, that's not true. So you know what? I thought it was a good plot line and I feel like they're setting up Trent Krim to have some sort of storyline in season three. And uh, I'm excited about that. Cause I love Trent Krim as a character. He's like a great character. I actually wish he was in season two more. I, I love Trent Krim. I think maybe this means that they hired Trent Krim as their new head of PR. Now that Kiwi is gone. What, what, would he work on the team side? I mean, I think no reporter would ever go from reporting to team side. I think that's, we've never heard of that. <laughs> that would be a bridge too far in this leap of faith they're asking us to make. I, I do have to disagree. I think the Nate storyline sucked. I think it was bad. The Nate storyline. The entire the- Nate storyline. No, I agree with the Nate storyline. I They kind of ruined him as a character. It disappointed me. And, I did, and he also was. weirdly grayed throughout the entire season, which I don't know was their way That's, of trying to turn That was into- 100% intentional. I noticed that halfway in. They were they were showing, it was it was a way of them showing how stressed he was. Was it? I thought it was their way of kind of turning him into Jose Mourinho. And so showing thought, this egotist he had become. I thought it was their way of showing how much stress the the coaching job was putting on him. Is he the new gaffer at West Ham or is he just the coach there? I don't know. Is he the new manager? He's the coach. He's the manager. I'm assuming he's the they new They left manager. that kind of un, unclear a little bit. I think he's their manager. Why would he go from being the assistant on a on a you know division two the championship level to now being the head gaffer at, at an EPL club? I don't know enough about soccer to discuss this, but I, 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 I can't answer that. We're going to have to find out. Uh, I don't know. I, I thought what was weird about season two and some of it was good and some of it wasn't as good, but it affected the vibe of the show. And I liked season two. It was good. Season one was incredible. Amazing. Amazing. I didn't think season two was incredible. I thought it was no. good. What was weird about season two is they took kind of the main vibe of many of the characters in season one. And then they kind of tried to flip it to give them the Mm. opposite in season two. So like Nate's was his innocence and kind of wide-eyed excitement for the job. And then they turned him into a jaded jerk in season two. Ted's was that he was always so happy about everything and so they made him depressed in season two and anxious uh and like there were all of these different kind of flips of you know roy kent they made softer right yeah uh trent Krim, they made commit the worst journalistic sin that you can commit even though he is like the capital j journalist uh so they flipped them all, but we'll see. They're, they're, they're very, it's a very well-written show. They're very good at winning you back, you yeah. know? Like Jamie Tart, they just, they made him a jerk and, and he wins you back. He's a great character. Like Rebecca, 
You make her awful, she wins you back. Great character. I I think the best, I mean, Roy Kent is the best character on the show. I think we all agree, right? He's a great character. You're not going to go best. He's see, he's my favorite. I love his angriness. I love his uh, dislike of everyone. I think that to me is he is the best character on that show. I'm a I'm a big uh, I'm a really big Higgins guy. Higgins is good. Higgins is good. Um, what did you think of the beard episode? I was I was about to ask you that. I was weirded out by it, but came around during the uh, dance scene. I think that just tied it up for me that I came to love it. I'm also not sure all of it was real. I hated it. I hated it. Well, because it was so out of character. One, we've never had an entire episode on one character. Two, it was very dark, right? We're not, we're used to at least some like, like some kind of levity during an episode. And the whole episode was dark until the dance floor. Um, it was just odd. I, we, we also had only gotten beard in small doses. They asked them to do so much acting and performing. It felt like a spinoff. Like a beard show? We're going to get the beard show? Yeah. It felt like an unnecessary spinoff. And most spinoffs are bad. Yeah. I, I did. I was watching Community while after I started watching Ted Lasso. And I realized the actor who plays Beard is apparently always just playing weirdos. He played a character on Community at a small guest appearance where he thought he was Jesus. So Brandon, that seems to Brandon be Brendan Hunt. Yeah. Brendan Hunt. All right. I know you've got to get lunch. I think you're covering a Knicks game tonight. Is I that am. accurate? Okay. Knicks cool. Wizards. Uh, the Fred Katz Bowl. Yeah. The second one in the last week. I can't That's escape right. my past. Um, do, do the Wizards miss you? Have you gotten longing texts? <laughs> Cer- certainly not. Okay. Certainly not. I don't think they've thought once about me. Well, I'm sure that uh, the Knicks will have a longing for you. They will pine for you after not very long. They love the media in New York, so I'm sure you'll get that kind of affection. Um, Fred, I appreciate you doing the podcast. Uh, everyone, if you're not, please follow Fred on Twitter. Read all his extremely awesome work on The Athletic. He is the best uh, reporter to ever cover the Knicks for The Athletic, and you will enjoy his work for years to come. Everyone, thank you for listening to this episode of the Long Twos podcast. Um, And we'll catch you guys next time.